In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just tell him I said, hey, just that, no big deal. <clears throat> How you doing? Video call? No. <clears throat> um, man, it's great to see so many of you I haven't seen in forever. There's been a, an empty seat right in front of me for a long time. So good to see you. So good to see you. I know, Pastor Tears and Pastor Joe, we get it, we get it, but this is a special one. Um, it's good to have everybody here. We bring up the slides for the sermon. So uh, we're just continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, is there a problem with the slides? Are we ready to roll? Okay, good. So this is um, interesting, right? So it's an Easter sermon, so I, I felt some pressure, so I decided to name the sermon Easter Pressure. So just in the way of introduction, have you ever felt... Easter pressure, that pressure that says you have to make Easter Sunday special. Somehow it's got to be Easter Sunday has to be a much more spiritual experience than some average ordinary Sunday. Next question would be, have you ever faked it? (laughs) Have you ever acted like Easter Sunday was more joyful than a regular Sunday, but maybe really wasn't? And in the end, really... How should Easter actually feel? Should it be different from any other Sunday? And, you know, typically what happens is this. Most people, when we celebrate Easter, we view it as a celebration of a glorious, miraculous, historical event. Worthy, by the way, the resurrection is worthy of many very important traditions to remind us of what happened. It is the resurrection that is the most important date on the Christian calendar the resurrection of our Jesus after suffering death on the cross. And of course, that resurrection is certainly worthy of remembrance and of a holiday celebration. But for me every year, I don't know about you, but for me, I feel Easter pressure. As a person, as a child of God, just as a Christian, I feel Easter pressure for it to to quote-unquote mean more than other days. And I feel pressure to express that joy in an appropriate manner. And as a pastor, as your pastor, I also feel Easter pressure for it to mean more for you. I want to meet your expectations of what you want Easter to be. And so I have to make sure that I come up with some sort of really good sermon that just knocks it out of the park. I mean, if a pastor can't preach a good Easter sermon, then what good is he as a pastor, right? Well, he's a pretty good pastor, but he's terrible on Easter every year. That's not going to work. Add to that pressure visitors. You want to make a good impression. Suddenly, the pressure makes Easter less about joy, and now it's more about meeting expectations personally and corporately. Your expectations and my own. And where does that Easter pressure come from? I think the same place all religious pressure comes from, venerating tradition. Tradition is, and keeping tradition, is the source of a lot of religious pressure. But today I have a different goal for you in this Easter sermon. Today I want to relieve Easter pressure just a little bit. Instead of a day spent looking back at the resurrection... We were going to try to turn Easter into something new, something that looks mostly forward. 
And my goal is that we can all leave here with our hearts full of Easter hope instead of feeling Easter pressure brought on by traditional expectations. So let's read our passage today. It's in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. So they're at the high priest's house, just you understand what that means. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Yet even about this, let me see. There we go, missed one. Okay. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And sons stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, but not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. (laughs) And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face, and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So let's learn a little bit about the history of this passage. It's actually very important. I want you to see that what we have here is a Jesus who is judged by sinners. Now, understand, there's some civic pride involved here. When Israel was about to enter into the promised land, uh, about 1,500 years before this, God commanded them to create an exceptional system for justice. In Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 to 19, he said, You shall appoint judges and officers in each individual town that the Lord your God is giving you. According to your tribe, they shall judge with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. God said, set up a court system in every village. And they took this directive seriously. They invested much time in selecting the right people and energy putting together the buildings, even down to the smallest local level. This, the Jewish system, even more so than Rome, was the most extensive justice system in the ancient world. With courts in every town and village, it was truly a a source of civic pride and joy. The synagogues present in every town or village were the actual courthouse, and each one, each synagogue, had 23 appointed elders or judges to rule. These courts had immense power over Jewish culture. It was the final seat of authority and spirituality. They had specific rules that every court would follow to ensure fairness and justice as far as the judicial procedure, the time of day, a trial would be held, how false witnesses would be punished if they lied in court. And for the system to maintain credibility, these rules had to be followed intently. Great care was taken to ensure that they were. But with anything we see happening, we see civic corruption. Their civic pride became identity with their past. And sadly, if you think about it, most of us get our personal identity from where? Not the future, but the past. What we've experienced, what we've been taught. 
constant veneration of the past usually ends with an unhealthy devotion or misguided adoration or idolization of the past, sort of like what religion does for the most part. These religious men had corrupted the temple, the synagogues, and now we see the court system. And they all did it in the name of trying to preserve tradition. Because the temple, as we know, Jesus said, you've made the temple a den of thieves. The synagogues had become a country club where the rich and powerful would hang out. The court system had become a sewer of abuse of power. Each civil institution in Israel became a vehicle for grifting and swindling and self-promotion in the name of tradition. And by this time, the average Jew in Israel had no access to justice, prosperity, or even the ability to worship God. Adoration of their tradition and all the pains they took to preserve it caused these institutions to begin to fail under the weight of this corruption. The whole system at this point, and Jesus said this a few times, the whole system needed to be bulldozed. Somebody would need to make things new. A new incorruptible authority needed to be established. But because it's corrupt, we have a sham trial that we're reading about here. So Annas was the high priest, and he was forced to step down from Rome. But he's still running things behind the scenes. He's running it through the high priest in name now, Caiaphas. And Annas was like a mob boss, to be honest, using his power to get things done without actually having to do it himself. And So that's the dynamic at play here. And because they were afraid that Jesus was going to destroy their traditions that they adored, they discarded all norms of justice to make sure that he was executed quickly. They were in a hurry. They wanted to get this trial done and out of the way before sundown so he didn't interfere with another tradition called Sabbath. What's the rush? You know what it was? It was Passover pressure. They wanted to get this trial done so it wouldn't ruin the Sabbath after Passover. See, rules required this type of trial begin midweek in daylight in a public place for transparency and fairness. Instead, they hold the trial under the cover of dark, about 2 a.m., 3 a.m., on the eve of the Sabbath instead of the middle of the week, and they do it in the private home of Annas. They brought this parade of false witnesses who provided perjurous or inaccurate testimony, but they're still unable to incriminate Jesus. So that's the history. The theology, what about God? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I want to see that you understand that the main thing that Jesus does here and the reason this becomes a tremendous Easter passage is he is claiming power. Now, there's one final charge they're going to try. Have you ever been in a situation where you had information that other people around you didn't have and because they were worried about something but you knew something they didn't, you were at peace? Well, in the face of adversarial corrupted power, Somehow Jesus feels no urgency to defend himself against any of the false charges. Any of us would be screaming, trying to defend ourselves because we would fear an unjust verdict. But somehow he has no fear of injustice. He feels no pressure. Why? Because he knows how it's all going to end. <clears throat> but Annas, the high priest behind the scenes, <clears throat> he can't let this situation pass. 
this opportunity. He knows Jesus has claimed to be Messiah, in other words, God, before, and he wants to try to get Jesus to admit it here. So he directs Caiaphas to ask Jesus, are you Messiah? This is the only charge Jesus answers to, and his charge is bold and clear and unambiguous. Here's what he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, in other words, at the right hand of God, and coming with clouds of heaven. Let me explain to you what this means. It means he's coming with power from heaven. He's not just speaking his own words. He is quoting, word for word, the most famous messianic reference in the Old Testament. It is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to Jehovah and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You know what this is? It is Jesus declaring, you ready? All of you people trying to judge me, you're about to lose your authority. In fact, you're not even in charge right now. I am. Not only am I the son of man, I am also the son of God with power and authority over you. And after you kill me, I will return with incorruptible power from heaven. Justice will flow. I will be the only judge. He is declaring, Jesus is, an official transition of spiritual authority from these corrupt religious men to himself, and it is happening right before their very eyes. Ironically, this is what they've been hoping for for 1,500 years. For centuries, the establishment of the kingdom of God. But somehow, because of their love affair with tradition, they don't want to let go of it, and they can't see it. They were so distracted, so concerned about the past and preserving tradition, they weren't interested in future hope. Preserving traditions of a holiday that celebrated Passover, a past miraculous thing that God did, that celebration became more important than the whole reason, the end goal of what Passover was about. And his statement just makes a group of triggered priests. See, Jesus specifically on purpose designed his answer to trigger them to create a powerful, emotionally, highly political charged response. All the Sanhedrin would immediately recognize the passage he's quoting about himself, and they are certainly triggered by it. Their obsession with tradition and the power it afforded them blinded them to who Jesus really was and what was happening. They are outraged. Jesus is calling himself God with power over death, but also power over us. He's saying our traditions mean nothing to him. We don't need to hear anything else. Kill him. The scripture says they spit on him. Then they put a sack over his head. You ever seen in a movie when somebody puts a bag or a sack over someone's head? It's humiliating and it's terrifying. And with the sack over their head, over his head, they're beating him. He doesn't know where it's coming from. He can't see. And then they mock him. Oh yeah, Jesus, 
Tell us about your power now. That's when they said, prophesy. What they're saying is, speak for God now, Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, coming in the clouds with power. You think you're in charge, Jesus? Speak up. Stop us from beating you because Messiah would never let somebody spit on him. Okay. Personal section. What about us? What are we supposed to do and why and how do we do it? I want to talk about overcoming Easter pressure. This was the social media thing this week. You ever feel disappointed because your Easter Sunday bliss couldn't even endure, even endure past Monday morning? How can we fix that? Some of you might be upset with what I'm about to say. But don't let your adoration of religious tradition get in the way of actual hope. This thing, Easter pressure, is real. Every year on Easter, we celebrate the resurrection with going to church, singing, remembering the glory of the resurrection of Jesus, and we're taught that we should have higher expectations for how Easter should impact our hearts emotionally, how it should feel somehow more joyful, more fulfilling. I mean, after all, we're followers of Jesus, right? And on this first Easter, nearly 2,000 years ago, he conquered death and he sealed our salvation. I mean, starting in early February, I got to tell you, I start to feel pressure. What am I going to do with Easter? Megan, what do you think we should do? Laura, what do you think we should do? I'm talking to my wife. What about this? And I start thinking, I've got to figure out a way to make Easter sermon powerful. I want to make sure I meet your expectations. What if they don't like it? They'll never come back. Look, don't get me wrong, all right? I love Easter. It's a great traditional reminder, a reassurance that our Savior did conquer death. Easter does comfort parts of my heart and parts of my soul that are prone to doubting or forgetting. So it's an important remembrance. It's important, it's powerful, and it does bring Easter an element of joy. I'm not discounting that. But can we just be real for a moment here? Easter tradition isn't fully satisfying. Nor can it be. Nor should it be. Traditions never are. Why? Because while we know on Easter week we say Sunday's coming, right? And it is, and we're excited, and Easter's great. But all our Easter traditions fall short because we also know something else. Monday's coming. (laughs) And then Easter's over for 12 months. Or 12 months in a week, depending on where it falls on the calendar. I never understood that, but whatever. (laughs) But let me tell you about the ultimate Easter. What if, hypothetical, what if one day there was an Easter with no fear of Monday coming? What if it wasn't a tradition, but a new reality? Look at this verse from Isaiah. It's powerful. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not see it? I will make a way in the wilderness 
and rivers in the desert. I'm going to leave that verse up there for the rest of the sermon so you can kind of reflect back on it as I'm speaking. This group of Sanhedrin religious leaders were so focused on the past, on tradition, they could not, as the scripture says, perceive it. What about you? Looking back cannot be all there is to Easter. That's all tradition is really designed to do, right? To remind us to look back. Am I right? That's what tradition really is. Don't forget this. Remember that so that you feel the same way again. Easter must be about the future Easter Jesus and what he is promising here about a time when he comes with power. Don't fall victim to Easter pressure by losing focus on the true joy and hope in today's passage, in this future Easter that Jesus is one day promising will come to pass. Let me just tell you something. Easter, as much as we love it, don't be mad at me, it's a really dull holiday tradition compared to the day Jesus returns in full power. You think Easter's good? (laughs) Wait for that day. It it will make Easter look like, I don't know, Columbus Day. (laughs) Are the banks closed? Why? Oh, (laughs) Oh, it's Easter. Okay, I got it. Don't be like the Sanhedrin that are so obsessed with tradition that we can't see what's unfolding right before our eyes. You know, Jesus was at peace while being falsely accused because he knew things about the future the Sanhedrin did not. And today, we get so upset about government injustice and abuse of power in our world, we often forget we have very valuable information ourselves. Easter should be a reminder to us that we have information the world doesn't that one day our Jesus will be the new authority. All the injustice, the sadness, the suffering, the political corruption in the world, all of it will come to a screeching halt. And on that Easter, when that happens, we're not even going to be tempted to look back anymore. will be wholly amazed and fully satisfied in the presence of our resurrected Jesus. And the joy we experience that day will be far superior to any joy any of our Easter traditions could ever provide us. That's the day we experience full joy that comes from fulfilled hope that will be relieved beyond comprehension. Nothing else will matter. Nothing will distract us. Not bunnies, not Easter egg hunts, nothing. We will be consumed with all the joy, hope, and love humanly possible. But for now, this is the Easter we have. And we do have it. And I'm thankful for it.
It's a good Easter with traditions that remind us of His glorious resurrection. But don't feel guilty if our Easter traditions don't meet all your expectations because that's not what Easter is designed for. I mean, it's a beautiful tradition, but Easter no matter how much work you put into celebrating that Sunday, will never leave you completely satisfied and joyful. That feeling is reserved for a future Easter when there's no Monday coming. Because I don't know if you realize this, but Easter, even the resurrection, isn't the source of our hope. Now, it is the resurrection of very crucial ingredient to making our hope come alive, just like the cross was, just like Christmas was, just like Passover was. All those are important ingredients in bringing the culmination of our hope, but they are just ingredients in the overall picture of making hope come alive, the things that make hope even possible. Hope in the day our resurrected Jesus comes with power, That, my friends, is the true source of Easter joy that you may not even realize it, but you are yearning for it right now this morning. That's why you're here. You want something different. You want something new. You want something special. And the closest that we can get to it is an Easter tradition. Hope is the day that the resurrected Jesus comes and what we feel for and and yearning for this morning is served up on a silver platter. So as we celebrate our beautiful Easter traditions today, I don't know what you have planned for later, maybe with family, I don't know. Don't be discouraged if you find yourself faking it just a little bit. You follow me? Because you're probably going to have to. But you know what happens when, when you find yourself faking Easter joy? Don't feel guilty. Take it like this. Ah, it's a sign that I know that there's a future Easter coming. Something better than Sunday coming. It's the Lord Jesus and his return with power. So I hope with that perspective you can have just a little bit of relief from Easter pressure today. Jesus, we're thankful for the times you allow us to remember your resurrection. And we do look back on it with fondness and encouragement. But we also recognize that celebrating a past event will never completely satisfy us. That is reserved for the day where we see you, our resurrected Savior, face to face when you come with all power. Oh, we long for that day. We yearn for that day when there's no more Monday coming. No more corruption, no more pain, no more sorrow. Just us with you for all eternity, completely fulfilled, completely satisfied. But until that day, traditions that help us remember will have to do. 
but we will live in hope of the ultimate Easter. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we love you. We wish you a happy Easter with your family this weekend. Enjoy it, and don't feel guilty if you have to fake it just a little bit. Have a great week. Thank you.